This is Land and Power, a podcast where we talk to people of color about land and about the groundbreaking and thoughtful work they do related to land. My name is Yolanda Altamirano. In this episode, we're doing something different. We're talking with Michelle Connor, the president and CEO of Forterra. Michelle is a white, third-generation Washingtonian. She explains why our organization is thinking about equity, or should be thinking about equity, 100% of the time. We'll also ask her why a land trust wanted to make a podcast in the first place. Our host, Kyle Norris, spoke with Michelle at her home in Seattle. What exactly is a land trust? Land trusts are organizations that negotiate real estate, uh, property rights. Um, If you think about real estate as a bundle of sticks, which is how people think about it under English and U.S. law, you can parse different pieces of those sticks and hold them in ownership. Uh, So a road easement might be one of those uh, sticks or the right to harvest timber. Um, And most landowners own their entire bundle of sticks if you accept the premise of English law ownership. And so for a land trust, it's acquiring all or some of those sticks to achieve typically what's an ecosystem or recreational value for the broader community. I like the sticks idea. So you've obviously talked about this before. Yeah, well, and it's not my idea. And I didn't go to law school, but a lot of lawyers have shared that with me. And, you know, you think about how different cultures might have related to place and land. And is that idea like what we want to carry forward? It's certainly the idea that all of our laws and structures and systems are based on. But fundamentally, many, many indigenous peoples across the world had a much different relationship uh, to the land that they resided on. Um, And we can all go and read those stories told in the voices uh, from those people or hear those stories. And it's a much different relationship. Do you think about those two different takes on land at your job? I do. And honestly, the one that relates to me the most is the idea that we're all connected. We're connected in our relationships to each other. We're connected in our relationships with the plants and animals and the waters and the soils of where we are. And If you talk to indigenous peoples of the Northwest, that's the relationship they have. If you go and talk to the indigenous peoples in Japan, that's the relationship that they have. This is not a unique sort of uh, emotional and spiritual construct. I'm curious why Forterra wants to do a podcast. Forterra has done its most successful work by listening deeply to the stakeholders who are concerned with the land that we're working on, whether that's a farmer or a family that's owned a piece of forest land for a few generations, or a community that's worried about how their neighborhood is changing around them. And solving for those problems has been how we have achieved conservation over our last 30 years. Because we essentially have no power when we come to the table in terms of forcing anybody to do anything, we have to find voluntary agreements. And because we've had limited access to capital, finding value in the relationships that people have with the land, solving for the problems that they're faced with, which might not be monetary, has been a big part of our work. And when we've been successful, has led to some of our biggest successes. How does that connect to the podcast part? So in terms of the podcast, 
or ampersand live or any of the dialogues we have, stepping back and thinking at a higher level about what we're about and hearing the voices of people who have deep knowledge and lived experience in the area um, that we're interested in exploring becomes a foundation for how we move ahead. And so to have a podcast, uh, it's a way for us to share what we're interested in exploring with the broader community and building relationships there, as well as building relationships with these thinkers and learning ourselves. So this is part of our effort to learn and reflect on our work and our effort to share that knowledge with others. We talk about equity in the podcast. So to start off with, how do you define equity? In, in a context where people are coming into place with different opportunities at the outset, if you talk about equality, some people will never ever have the same chance to flourish that others will. And you know, the poster image of it is if you have a fence and a group of kids want to look over at a baseball game and there's a tall kid and there's maybe a younger child, if they're being treated with equality, they'll each have a one foot step stool. And so the little kid staring at the fence can't see the game and the tall kid's got more than enough view over the wall to see the game. When you talk about equity, that little kid would have a much taller step stool, maybe a three foot step stool, so they can both see over. And maybe the taller kid doesn't need a step stool. So equity is for everybody to have that opportunity to access the game. And how does that relate to the work that you guys do? Fundamentally, in our country, we've not all had the same shot at access to a safe place, a place that can allow us to flourish. If you look back over the history of U.S. laws and financing for black people, they were deprived of access to financing, to certain types of benefits as um, veterans coming out of the military uh, that would have allowed them to purchase a first home. The difference in wealth between white and black families today is stark. And one of our efforts is to redress those differences. Uh, if you look at the redlining effects in Seattle's central area or in Tacoma's hilltop, those residents are now being confronted with folks having accumulated a lot more wealth over the last couple generations of their families in terms of real estate that they were uh, enabled to purchase, educations that they were able to access, generational wealth transfer. And so essentially for black and brown residents in our region, they've not had those opportunities. And we're looking for ways to create step ladders that are similar to those that have been historically available to white people in our country and to make those now available to everyone. And one of the innovative ways we've been looking at that is to think about how to reduce barriers to ownership, whether that's ownership to farmland uh, for immigrant farmers who are wanting to advance their entrepreneur efforts, whether it's uh, helping today's farmers conserve their land with transfer of development rights, which allows a young farmer who wants to grow green goods not have to finance their farmland as if it were a residential development. When you look at communities in Tacoma and Seattle, we're thinking about how cooperative ownership can reduce the barriers to uh, owning a home and financing a home. And there are real 
substantive technical solutions out there that essentially make the pie larger. It doesn't take anything away from anyone else in the community. It just provides more opportunities so that all of us have a place to thrive. How much is Forterra thinking about this? Like if this were a pie chart, what percentage would be the equity part? Everything that is going on in our society today has some grounding in the places that we live and work, which means the land. And whether Forterra is thinking about restoring a river or protecting farmland or conserving natural areas for salmon habitat or recreation areas for biking and hiking or working in our most dense neighborhoods in Seattle and Tacoma, all of those places intersect with the question of equity and justice. And we're striving to bring that lens to all of our work, to be more thoughtful about how we restore city parks, to be more thoughtful about whether we're addressing the needs of neighborhoods that maybe don't have access to parks, or are we being responsive to indigenous and tribal treaty rights when we're conserving a piece of property? Is it being done in a way that comports with the values of that local tribe? Or working in response to a neighborhood calling us concerned about losing uh, an iconic place in their community and working with them to have a community-informed, essentially conservation effort for a neighborhood to conserve its place, to conserve its well-being, just like we conserve habitat. So I would say, if not 100% of the time, it should be 100% of the time. So when we talk about equity, what are the two or three big topics underneath equity that Forterra thinks about? Programmatically or morally? Oh, I guess morally. (laughs) I think it's super important for all of us to be grounded in how we got to where we are today. And not understanding that makes it really hard to know what the right thing to do is or where the right opportunities are to not restore, maybe not even repair, but to create new, new healthy relationships with each other and to do that with respect for what's come before. So by way of example, if we don't appreciate the intentional structural lack of access to financing or the systemic barriers created with redlining and explicit exclusions on deeds for instance, for Jewish and black people to live in certain neighborhoods, then it may seem not important that you live in a neighborhood where you don't see black people on the street. Once you understand that though, and you look around your neighborhood, it's much easier to understand that it might not be just something that occurred by chance. So having a fundamental understanding and stepping back and understanding both the structural and technical sources of the world as we see it today, as well as the lived experiences for the people who have endured those differences, gives us a real opportunity to make things better for the future. So understanding and grappling with that past and and recognizing that there are levers today that we can pull on collectively to make change is um, a big part of our work. And in terms of our programs, a few years ago, 
we committed ourselves to thinking not just about protection of open space and natural areas outside of our cities, but realized that as a place-based organization, a large part of our work had to be committed to making um, community health and well-being as it relates to land part of what we do and part of what we prioritize. We started something called the Strong Communities Fund. And that fund was intended to allow us to embark on conserving land that was important to communities. And so that's another big part of our work. But even in our traditional work of protecting farms and forests, parks, recreation areas, thinking about who might want to access those areas, but might want to access it and use it for a different purpose, um, or might have concerns about access if it impedes uh, traditional hunting and gathering. And being responsive to those concerns is a critical obligation that we have. You know, one example that I'd heard around parks was there was a time when, you know, a park picnic table didn't have space for somebody who might be in a wheelchair um, and used a wheelchair to be able to pull up with their family at a table. That's changed now. You look at any park and you will see tables that allow people with all types of mobility um, to use that table and feel comfortable at it. Similarly, a table that accommodates a family of four is not suited for an extended family or a community that gathers uh, for cultural opportunities to celebrate the outdoors in larger gatherings. And so you'll notice that now there are collections of picnic tables at a lot of our parks. Those are the kind of accessible and simple changes that create equity in our society. If you just stop and look around and understand and talk with people who have that lived experience and honor it. You mentioned there were a couple of levers that you guys can pull to get the equity thing going. So what are a couple of those levers? Sure. One is working with community members who may have greater wealth to encourage them to reflect on how they can make choices about how they earn interest or how much interest they really need to earn. And if they forego some of that interest, it can have a powerful effect when you're talking about a $50 million building. Somebody who might typically invest on a two-year cycle and maybe in the marketplace could earn, you know, I'll call it 12% just to make it up, uh, interest on that uh, investment, might in order to benefit community members that didn't have the same opportunities that they had, forego 10% of that interest. So maybe they receive 2% or nothing and invest the money for 10 years. And that differential has a huge lever of benefit for the community. And it's a way for people to recognize that things were done in our past as a culture that allowed them to have those opportunities that were deprived of the people uh, who they're passing forward that opportunity to. You know, in one episode, we talk a lot about land ownership and reparations for Black folks in America. So I'd like to know more about how Forterra is even thinking about that. Sure. And this is recent knowledge for me. I recently read the book, The Color of Law. And for folks interested in learning about this, I really encourage uh, taking the time to read it. It's a striking history of the United States going back to the time of slavery, uh, when people were brought to this country 
enslaved, involuntarily forced to work on land that generated much of the wealth of the United States. There have been a lot of news stories recently about specific cases where universities have benefited from uh, the work and labor and intellect of enslaved peoples. And that's true across our country. Much of the initial wealth of this country was built through forced labor of people brought to this country involuntarily. After the time of the Civil War, our government spoke of providing freed black people with resources, including uh, land and a mule to make their own way in this world. If that had been done, the difference in terms of equity in this country would have been tremendous, but it wasn't done. And so there has been a persistent and consistent gap in the opportunities and the ability for black families to generate wealth to pass on generation to generation, despite great intellect, despite great effort, despite uh, great contributions to our society. And that makes all of us the less, and it makes our society the poorer. And to find ways with the tools that are available to us to repair and restore and to allow a new future of opportunity that systemically has been uh, not made available to a whole segment of our society is the topic at hand. I think it's an open question. It's, it's a dialogue that's long overdue. Uh, Forterra is doing what it can in terms of the tools that we have access to, to begin to make a contribution towards repairing that relationship and that fabric. And it may be that part of this is for all of us to think about what are the opportunities we have individually and organizationally, in terms of companies, in terms of governments, for repairing the fabric of this country. Um, and so this is one effort to explore those ideas and opportunities. Why does all of this matter? We live in a beautiful place, right? And we have a rich and vibrant, varied community with a mix of cultural uh, wealth that is exceptional. And as we look to the future and we're facing challenges from climate, from economic injustice, from health injustice, that wealth can only increase if we invest in addressing those disparities. I would say it's the practical thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. And I got to say, it's the thing that gives me the most pleasure every day in the work that we do at Forterra. Working to create new homeownership opportunities for Somali Americans in Tukwila and the black community in Tacoma, uh, you, you just know that it's creating an opportunity for people to age and grow their families and to grow together in a place that they love dearly. And that gives me the same pleasure as, you know, seeing a fern get tucked in the ground in a, under a forest canopy where maybe brambles have been growing and weeds have been growing and to know that that fern is going to thrive and that all the things that go with that fern from the small birds to the cedar tree uh, that's over it will be better off for it. It's, it's a great legacy to leave. What's the first step of the equity process for Fruterra? Well, we have a lot to learn, and I want to just be super humble about that. Um, 
And even entering these spaces, we are bound to make mistakes. Uh, and so I think the first step is humility. Um, the second step is to invite a conversation with the people whose lives are most grounded in the issue. And if that conversation is welcome, to listen, to be curious, to hear things that may challenge our thinking or make us uncomfortable. And then again, if the invitation is welcome to accompany that community and that person on a journey to find ways to solve for the challenges that they're confronting. And one of the great pleasures is starting on a journey with great companions, knowing that you're headed towards making things better, but not knowing exactly how you're going to do it and hitting technical challenge or practical challenge or economic challenge after challenge, and then trying to solve for each of those along the way. But that starts with listening and understanding what it is that a community needs, what help they're asking for to remove barriers that have been there that maybe society has played a hand in creating and now can play a hand in correcting and going a step at a time at the pace of trust. You can learn more about Forterra and the work we do at forterra.org. The Land and Power podcast is produced by Kyle Norris in partnership with the folks at Forterra. That includes Everett Lawson, Susan Greylock-Usum, Toby Levy, and me, Yolanda Altamirano.